when they emotionally reject education and believe what they want to believe, it's dangerous. Example, Samuel Alito. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Sinclair Lewis's 1935 bestseller, It Can't Happen Here, is seen as a novel that foreshadowed Donald Trump's authoritarian appeal. It is a cautionary tale about the fragility of democracy, an alarming, eerily and frighteningly timeless look at how fascism could take hold in America. The far, often religious right has gained power in countries around the world that did have democracies. Well, America is no exception. Unlike the Democratic Party, the far right has done its research and discovered many ways to actually gain power. Elections are one way. Local school boards are another. There's legislation directed by centralized right-wing interests. And perhaps most effective, out of the everyday view of most Americans, the courts. Installing radical activist judges who aggressively ignore or even attack constitutional tradition. The common goal among them is to replace a democratic republic with a religious nationalism. Though it's been worked on largely behind the scenes by big money and many evangelicals for decades, this far-right goal came into clear view with the leak of a draft majority opinion by the Supreme Court written by Samuel Alito this spring. The intent has always been overturning Roe versus Wade. And the truth is, it's not about saving babies. It's always been about reasserting white heterosexual male domination and control over women and fear of others as well. In all aspects of life, not just abortion, but freedom over women's own bodies is at the center of this serious assault on traditional rights. It could well be that democracy falls along with the fall of reproductive rights. And while Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett have loomed large in the mainstream media, Samuel Alito has been quietly, steadily, reliably toiling in the trenches toward truly radical, many would say un-American goals, which he hopes will turn into America, into his vision of a white, male-run religious nationalism, which looks very much like a dictatorship. Our guest today is Jordan Smith, and she writes, In his zeal to overturn Roe, Alito not only dismisses the decades of work toward realizing the ideal of equality, but also the very notion of equality itself. That should scare you. It scares me. Our guest today, as I said, is Jordan Smith. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thanks for having me. Jordan Smith is senior reporter for The Intercept, her piece on uh, The Intercept is titled The Fact-Free Logic of Samuel Alito, and it's subtitled In His Zeal to Overturn Roe and Do Away with Abortion Rights, the Supreme Court Justice relies on deceptive arguments and a regressive read of the law. That title, The Fact-Free Logic of Samuel Alito, how'd you come up with that title? <laughs> 
Well, uh, it really just sort of summed up my read of his opinion, um, which was this very aggressive, assaultive attack that employed a lot of wobbly reasoning and some stunning dismissals of history and also some alternate facts <laughs> that uh, were all designed and deployed in order to support his preferred outcome. Yep, it's been going on. So who is this <laughs> up until now kind of quiet man behind the curtain on October 31st, 2005, President George W. Bush nominated Alito for Associate Justice of the Supreme Court to replace retiring Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. No left-wing radical herself, pretty moderate to right-leaning. But anyway, Alito's nomination was confirmed by, to me, a surprising 58 to 42 vote of the United States Senate uh, in 2006. And I remember, as I remember, his positions on the law were blatantly really far to the right at the time. Now, I know it used to be tradition that senators would habitually just go along with the chief executive and respect his prerogative. Then came Robert Bork. At the time when Alito was confirmed, I didn't understand how the Democrats just rolled over and played dead. Could it have been merely exhaustion with the Bork situation? that everyone took such a public relations beating with the Bork fiasco that they overreacted and gave the president whatever he wanted. I, I was surprised they, they didn't stand up and fight. Yeah. I mean, the Bork situation was definitely a fiasco. So who knows if there's some of that at play. Although, you know, the thing about the Alito confirmation is that the yays weren't exactly overwhelming, especially when you consider that like just a couple months before Chief Justice John Roberts was confirmed on a 78 to 22 vote. But, you know, regardless, the thing is, is that Sam Alito has never been quiet about his disdain for Roe and then for Casey, the case that comes after it that, um, you know, reaffirms Roe essentially. And he right. actually played a role in that case when he was a circuit court judge. And, you know, he kind of danced around as they generally do at confirmation no. hearings. Um, sure. and, and at the time during the hearing, Chuck Schumer, it was actually rather precious at Alito's confirmation hearing where he basically said that he believed Alito would overrule, would overrule Roe if he was given the opportunity. Hmm. Um, which of course is not, surprising take right? right but the ramifications of that are, are staring us in the face today yeah they are and it, it, it is it's a big deal it's a really big yeah. deal and i doubt that anyone listening including myself has actually read the leaked <laughs> supreme court opinion authored by sam alito tell us please about the noteworthy tone of the document yeah it is incredibly hostile um, but it's like very Sam Alito, <laughs> who regularly, in my opinion, comes off like a, a man with a permanent chip on his shoulder and just full of grievance. Uh, and so the opinion really <laughs> reflects that. It's full of this like righteousness and condemnation. It is unsparing. Uh, it doesn't even try to be polite in uh, the way that Supreme Court opinions generally do, even when they're sort of pulling the rug out from underneath you. Um, it's incredibly aggressive. And it's very demeaning towards women, if not like simply sort of flat out misogynist. Mm. Yeah, normally Republicans 
Well, up until now, I guess I guess uh, it's it's safer now to be openly misogynist than it used to be. <sighs> I never. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I feel like a lot of people are saying the quiet parts out loud, right? There's just some like veil has been sort of whipped off, and now we say all the quiet things out loud. Which I guess, on the one hand, I mean, on one way, you could just be like, all right, well, at least you're you're saying it out loud, and we know exactly what we've seen you doing, sort of in quiet and sneaky ways. But but you know, that's cold comfort, I suppose. Boy, I'm old enough to remember when the far right was uh, uh, relegated to the likes of uh, George Corley Wallace and people like that and not taken seriously. But here it is. Here it is today. And as as someone said a long time ago, that it's like the lid was on the sewer for a long time. And then with the election of Donald (laughs) Trump, kaboom, it stinks. (laughs) You assert that Alito is using deceptive arguments and a regressive read of the law. What do you mean here? Um, well, there are sort of a fair number of examples of that in the opinion, but there are two that stick with me, among others. Whereas basically he's saying that abortion is sort of unmoored from the Constitution and not sort of part of the fabric of the nation, which is just like flat out wrong where history is concerned. But it kind of, it also completely dismisses the meaning uh, of, of various constitutional amendments, including the 14th Amendment and the context in which that was adopted during Reconstruction. And and yeah, so he just, his <laughs> read of the law and uh, he has a very ahistorical take and a very regressive read of what individual sort of passages mm. actually say. Absolutely amazing when it comes to any court, never mind the Supreme Court, to 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 just throw away history and to pretend it's not there. It just... Yeah, that is so different from our, you know, great American tradition. And of course, the word abortion is not in the Constitution. We know that. Alito says that fact means no such right exists. But you know, this completely ignores the historical significance of the 14th Amendment, end of your quote. What is the purpose of the 14th Amendment? And how does it affect this issue and our lives in general, perhaps? Yeah. So the 14th Amendment actually is fairly long and has several parts, but sort of the relevant portion here is essentially it's encapsulated in a, in a, in a string of clauses, which just starts to have it. Uh, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So it's really important what what the context of when this was adopted. It was adopted during Reconstruction. And it was a deliberate nod to making former enslaved people whole, so to speak, but particularly uh, including where the right to private procreative activities were. I mean, enslaved populations were forced to childbirth. They were forced to abortion. They were forced to, they weren't allowed to marry who they wanted to. So all of these things were on the forefront and in the discussions at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed. And so the right to decide when and with whom to have a family or not is, you know, is drawn into the idea of reproductive autonomy, which is what they're getting at here. And Alito also obviously kind of here ignores the Ninth Amendment, right? Which basically says, look, this Bill of Rights before this 
is not all that should be protective. They didn't want to be like, you know, lay out a list of like all the things and have right. to be an exhaustive list. Because that basically says, look, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So in other words, just because a specific right isn't mentioned doesn't mean it didn't exist. So then when you put those kind of things together and you look at the 14th Amendment, what it was deliberately trying to do, and this nod to the fact that what has been, you know, in the in the, the core bill of rights is not exhaustive, it's very hard to sort of you have to read that in, in such a way to construe it only to then enumerated rights, essentially, I guess is what I'm trying to get at for, for Alito and his ilk are the ones they favor not the ones other people favor, regardless of whether those were the very kinds of rights that were contemplated at the time that those amendments were adopted. Well, certainly privacy is something that, while not specifically defined, it's something that I think all Americans really believe in. You know, the old expression, uh, uh, home is a man's <clears throat> castle, uh, that we have, you know, we have the right to be in our homes. And we, we like privacy. You know, a lot of people uh, are very public, but we still like privacy. And I've, quite frankly, I, I'm very much pro-choice. Uh, I've long wondered about the word privacy as being the legal foundation on which the rights as spelled out in Roe are based. How did Roe apply and interpret the 14th Amendment with regard to privacy? And what about this argument that's kind of been boiling under, bubbling under for a long time, that, that privacy isn't in the Constitution. The word is not there. W what about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And obviously, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't want right. to stray too far into the weeds. But but if I could just say that, like, the arguments that were made by the litigators, by the advocates to the court in Roe specifically, and, and then kind of ultimately where the decision landed, where within this sort of fear of privacy uh, was based on a line of cases that had already been developing, right? Importantly, like including Griswold versus Connecticut, which yes. is the 1965 case that, you know, uh, had the right to contraception for use by married people, which was then later extended to, to single people. But, uh -huh. but that was like already um, being anchored in the idea of privacy, which was anchored in like in several places throughout the Constitution, including in the 14th Amendment, the 9th and 14th Amendment. So exactly what we're talking about. And it, it goes to this idea of liberty, right? Mm. This idea that you have these this, this liberty principle and it's kind of all anchored around that. That's, that's the easiest way for me to explain it without getting myself too far afield, I suppose. Well, it, but but liberty you know, is something people care about very much, and privacy. You're right. I mean, liberty is is rooted in privacy, and I wonder, you know, what what the right wing, what they think about, uh, and, and they disingenuously call themselves conservative. They're not conserving anything. But I wonder what they they mean by privacy, and and do they not see a threat to other privacy if Roe is overturned? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think they, they, to me, they seem to adopt a, you know, liberty for me, but not for these sort of things. It's very, very cherry picked, right? I mean, yeah. the, the, the Alito opinion tries to cabin abortion from other rights, but, 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 but that's just not possible, right? And right. so, very much on the chopping block are, are there rights that, that you know, conservative 
people largely disfavor. I mean, there is like Alito tries to say, well, Griswold and contraception, that, that's not at stake. Or, or the loving decision, which, you know, the right to marry whom you want with, and, and other rights interracial marriage in that context. Um, no, no, no way. Those are not on the table. Um, but they clearly are because they're all rooted in the exact same thing, right? And and then we're also looking at cases that come after Roe and Casey, um, like Obergefell, which gave the right to gay marriage in Lawrence versus Texas, which yes. gave the right to, to con- consensual sexual relationships. So, you know, the idea that he, he's just kind of making this up, that, that, that other things aren't a threat. And, and we're already seeing that since this opinion was leaked. I mean, we're already seeing... Um, a state like moving towards trying to ban certain disfavored forms of contraception. I think that w- w- something that's really important to keep in mind is that while this is a draft opinion, this is what is going to happen, right? Like yes. it is, it's, it's, there may be some of this wild, wild, just aggressive language maybe toned down, but, but this is it, right? Um, this is it, regardless if it, if it adds back in some politeness or, yeah. or not, you know, it's like, it's not going to change. So the notion that, you know, um, that other rights aren't in jeopardy. I mean, what we see here is that they are regardless what Samuel Alito says about those things. Right. That's the kind of what I wanted to get at was like, like we, there's, there's nothing here that suggests it's, this is just abortion. People just go back to sleep. It's fine. It's, it's not, that's not what's happening here at all i think that's a very interesting and extremely important uh, point to make that it's not just about abortion when there's an attack on the right to privacy boy that that spills over into an awful lot of things i mean there's you know every family every every group of people or, or individual that's living in a household may do mm-hmm. things that other people in other houses wouldn't do you know, don't right. like I, but we have that right, and this is a serious, serious threat. It's the, you know, I I tend to stay away from slippery slope arguments, but uh, this is clearly an intent to do that. And when they talk about you know banning abortion, that's that's really it's a culture war. Let's face it, it's it's part of the big time culture war. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about a serious serious threat to democracy our guest today is jordan smith senior reporter for the intercept and her piece on intercept is titled the fact-free logic of samuel alito and fear has been a tool used remarkably effectively by the right-wing religious nationalist nationalist i had to read a couple of times alito's raising the specter of forced sterilization he even implied pro-choice people have racist motivations what i mean you talk about crazy what the heck is he talking about here but that's it's trying to gin up fear i think well (laughs) this is yeah okay so this is again kind of leans into a sort of alternate universe history (laughs) um his claim here is that abortion has been championed as a tool to control the black population or to try to erase it. And he links this to eugenics, which is an argument that has been advanced by his colleague, Clarence Thomas. Now, this is like wrong, um, in part because it's important, like what they're describing as eugenics is not eugenics. And where abortion is concerned, 
Um, you have to remember that individual people terminating their individual pregnancies is not eugenics. And that's what he's conflating here is that abortion is somehow eugenic when it's really, it's not. Um, and, and, and it's like this take, which Thomas advanced in a, in a, like a, a concurrent, concurring opinion in, in 2019, um, it, it's been like adopted over and over again, but it's like completely ahistorical and has been roundly criticized by actual historians. And yet here it is showing up in Alito's opinion, which I find kind of, you know, again, it's back to this like bizarre ahistorical take designed clearly to sort of advance a goal, right? Um, and here, you know, kind of claiming, I would say like this kind of to claim that this is somehow a racist endeavor, abortion is racist. I think the idea is a little bit to set up that the, uh, you know, that abortion is racist becomes mm. a mm. sort of special circumstance. In other words, to allow them to sort of get past the normal, you know, sort of the norms uh. around, around precedent and, and the concept of stare decisis. Um, and so it's kind of advancing this ahistorical take on eugenics and like completely wrong take and, and setting it up in order to try to help justify overruling precedent. Interesting, because they, they have a few uh, key words that are used to fire up people. And, you know, they, they there is this large, you know, largely suburban uh, people that that can switch and vote, you know, left, right. Uh, but they none of nobody in that demographic wants to be called a racist people really hate that they and a, a good friend of mine a black guy said racists don't know they're racist and i was like what and he explained it to me it's just the way they've always been but to call right. it to call it racist that's like a, a buzzword that uh, gets people fired up and you know i i used to work in a law factory in other words i was in the new hampshire state senate where we made the laws and the timeless image and it can get ugly at times. Uh, the timeless image of justice is the blindfolded woman holding the scales in a totally neutral position, letting the weight and value of each case stand as it is without any subjective personal intervention. I wonder, I mean, I, I like to believe that's true. And, 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 and to believe in the law, there has to be some veracity to it. Alito has been described as more of a bulldozer. What does that say? Yeah, I mean, here, clearly bulldozing. <laughs> I mean, I think they feel free to bulldoze rights they don't like, right? And that's what's going on here. So there's no fidelity to, to, to the rule of law here. I think more broadly, sort of the idea or the ideal of justice is, is far more accurate than sort of actual justice. I mean, it's yeah. it's you really need to look no further than the criminal justice system, which is where I, I mostly uh -huh. do work. And our, I, in other words, you know, I don't think that there's ever been equal justice yes, in our system, no, which true. is pretty depressing, but it's pretty clear the way oh, that things yeah. play out and increasingly are. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to sort of look at voter suppression and uh, these kinds of laws and, you know, the gerrymandering and then this sort of bombshell to say that there's, you know, any equal playing field here or the notion that, you know, sort of stand aside and all sort of adhere to this fidelity and this idea of blind justice. Yeah, it Sorry, is. not to be depressing. <laughs> no, what's depressing? What's depressing these days except everything? Uh, uh, right. Yeah, exactly. But, but it, it, it's true. I mean, when you look at 
the system of justice, and I use that term advisedly, look at uh, mass incarceration. I right. mean, it's just, you, uh, justice? Where the heck is, there ain't no justice there. It's just. I mean, and you know, to, to, to that point, Alito is like, definitely does not like criminal defendants. And if you really want to point to a racist system, like the criminal justice system and the incidence of mass incarceration, oh look God. no further. Right. But it, that that doesn't seem to bother him. Just but deploying racism in a way to like find a justification to overturn Roe, that's fine, even if it's not the case. <laughs> oh, for so. sure. And and I'm sadly often reminded of uh, the advice of uh, Joseph Goebbels to his boss at the time saying, say of the other what is true about yourself. It works. It works, mm. unfortunately. So uh, looking a little bit at the, at the history here and. There was a guest here on the show. I wish I could remember his or her name who said, we got to think with history. That doesn't happen. We ignore history. We don't want to learn from history. History is so inconvenient. But anyway, Alito was on the panel that considered Casey, the Casey law that would have upheld all the abortion restrictions in that case. It was Sandra Day O'Connor who had basically developed the undue burden test and said that husband notification requirement was unconstitutional. (laughs) Your thoughts about that? Well, you know, it's really, I think it's like the one thing that's kind of always stood out for me is in kind of the chip on his shoulder thing. I mean, Alito in his, his uh, opinion in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, appeal was just like, picking at O'Connor and this undue burden test, it was very, it was clearly a lot more polite, but you, you know, you can read what he's saying. He's just very much just like, and then the fact that he basically gets, you know, uh, appointed to her seat has just always bothered me. Yeah. And, you know, his logic, his logic for saying that, that the husband notification requirement should be upheld was just crazy. Yeah. I mean, he's basically saying, Hey, you know, um, at one point in his opinion, he said something like, and this is total paraphrased, but mm-hmm. they're like, well, you know, maybe it's a good thing because, you know, a woman who uh, thought her husband would be, um, you know, didn't want a kid or something or thought there'd be marital discord. We'll, we'll talk to him about it. And then they'll realize they're both on the same page, you know, and it's like, what are you talking about? And then, and completely, meanwhile, completely dismissing the concerns um, that were forcefully sort of expressed by the Supreme Court uh, regarding w- women and domestic violence yes. and surveillance by abusive partners yes. and all this stuff. And he just was kind of like, meh, you know, how many of people would be affected by that? We can't know. So it doesn't really matter. And it was just very dismissive. And then I always felt like, you know, like you said, like, it's not as though O'Connor is just like some, you know, you know, like, complete centrist or, or lefty-leaning person, but I think she took her responsibilities on the court relatively seriously, and so, especially kind of in this realm, um, though I doubt she was necessarily a huge fan of Roe herself, right, but, but took the, the responsibility right. seriously, and um, to be replaced by Alito just always struck me as sort of a, oof, you know, just really a blow, and, and sort of like maybe a, an early sort of you know, uh, harbinger. It's like, oh, yeah. no, okay. Right? Like, oh, boy, here we go. So, yeah, and then here we are. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The idea of Alito being a harbinger. Yikes! <laughs> but, you know, it, it it is... Women, you know, it used to be the case, for example, that uh, women couldn't have credit cards. 
without their mm-hmm. husband a- approval on it. And right. it's it's kind of surprising to me, but I guess there's that whole fear thing, fear of losing control, that, uh, that, that women, according to these people, need to be second or third class citizens that men have to rule they this is this is no i don't think this is an exaggeration at all it's not so much about abortion particularly but but saying you know a a a marriage counselor wouldn't say well just try it again you know and just uh, don't worry about breaking up and having an abortion here and here this is not a marriage counselor this is a a judge you know a, a justice on the supreme court it's it's just Ah, it's amazing. You also write that Alito dismisses the notion that there are any clearly identifiable reliance issues at stake in discarding abortion rights. What is this concept of reliance? What are you talking about? Well, here, what we're kind of talking about is the idea that uh, people would have how do I describe it? That people would basically have built certain, have certain assumptions basically in their lives and have um, based on what the law is and are able to sort of plan their lives around the stability of the law. And, you know, he basically says that, and that would be sort of the reliance interest, right? Like I'm relying on this law as I go about planning my life or I have certain assumptions based on the reliability of this law. And, and what he says in this opinion is like, well, look, we know how to like sort of figure out what reliance interests are in, in concrete examples, like in property law cases, but like, you know, then he sort of shrugs and sort of like very, very, you know, it's not believable. I mean, he knows this, he's got to, but he sort of says, how could we possibly know, like, if this has actually helped any women? And, you know, so what would those reliance interests be? Like, oh, I don't know, who knows, shrug, you know, like whatever, moving along. But, you know, that's just, um, that's just not the case. I mean, we actually do know. Um, that, you know, generations of women have relied on this uh, law being stable in order to advance their lives. And we actually do know that that has had real world impact, which, again, Alito must know. I don't think he's dumb, but he's just basically ignoring, you know, sort of the solid evidence out there to show that there are um, is an actual effect of having this law to advance women's uh, equality and opportunity. And when you have people like that in positions of power, I mean, it's one thing for you know crazy people to be out there, but to be in positions of power, yikes! We're yeah. talking about Samuel Alito here. Bizarre. Uh, our guest, uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Jordan Smith, who uh, is senior reporter for The Intercept, which I recommend. Her piece is titled The Fact-Free Logic of Samuel Alito, and the subtitle, In His Zeal to Overturn Roe and Do Away with Abortion Rights, the Supreme Court Justice Relies on Deceptive Arguments and a Regressive Read of the Law. He knows what he's doing, I believe. I don't know, maybe not. Um, but this this law is about, about not just abortion, but it's about the rights of Americans, the rights of Americans, all of us. And I am old enough to have had a girlfriend before she met me who had to crawl up a fire escape for an abortion, and was it was messy. She was left with one less ovary. The power of the law is told through many individual cases, 
And without getting too far into it, I guess you have a story as well. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I found out I was pregnant when I was 19 and I was a sophomore at the University of Maryland. And I absolutely did not want to be pregnant. But, you know, I didn't. uh, I wanted to finish school. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And um, I just didn't. I knew I wanted an abortion. I just didn't have the money. So I kind of gathered up. I remember gathering up a bunch of and going to a payphone, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's like payphones. But I mean, but I don't know if there are any anymore. Um, but anyway, yeah. going to a payphone and sort of calling my mom and telling her. And the thing that I remember most about it was just like she did not miss a beat when I told her that I was pregnant. She just said, "No, you're not." Yeah. And she sent me the money that day, and that was that. And you know, it's not. Um, I. I I've never absolutely regretted anything that I've done regarding sort of, you know, my personal autonomy and uh, having access to abortion meant I could finish school and then I could go to grad school and then I could develop my career. Um, and, you know, there's actually, it's interesting because anti-abortion uh, or anti-choice activists and politicians often say um, that, you know, abortion is very damaging to women. Uh, emotionally, and and this is sort of they regret this their whole lives. This is a mm. huge talking point, and you know I um uh not living in Texas right now, but have for years and years and years. I was talking to be living out of state right now, but you know I have been at the Texas Capitol over and over again and watched uh, a series of anti-choice uh, women testify ad nauseum about how damaged they are, and this this is very much deliberate. They this talking line, this talking point. The funny thing about it is, and then I'm sure there are some people who have regretted their decisions. That is sure. not to say that those people don't exist because, you know, I mean, we all have certain things we regret. And, and for some, that may be very powerful given their, their personal circumstances. But where research uh, comes in, and we do have research on this, mm. um, there is a long-term study. It was called the Turnaway Study. And this was something that was done at the University of uh, San Francisco through this uh, this really really great um, um, research uh, program that they have about re- reproductive health and it's called the Turnaway Study and what they did was they tracked over time two groups of women both groups wanted to obtain an abortion one group was able to the other group got turned away hence the name of the study uh-huh. the Turnaway Study uh-huh. and what they found was actually that the women who wanted an abortion and were turned away had had more negative mental health consequences, um, anxiety and depression. Moreover, they've also found during this study, they were able to kind of link these people through to their finances through using um, credit credit reports. And we're able to see what happened financially to the women who were turned away when they wanted an abortion. And they actually had worse financial outcomes, um, fairly quickly thereafter. So, you know, this idea that just the personal story is all there is to this, again, it's not to dismiss the idea that some people may very well have regretted or it may have been a bad experience and, and, you know, or that they had some bad outcome. It's it's not to to reject that. But I do reject the idea that women are a monolith who overall believe that this is a terrible thing when actual research shows us that is not the case. And, you know, again, you see people like Alito 
They just reject the evidence oh. out there, the empirical evidence that comes to us through scientific feeds to, to and, and just sort of adopts, you know, narratives that don't speak to the truth of the matter necessarily, but that definitely speak to their preferred outcome. And when you think about, you know, living in a republic of the people, uh, you know, I I am a male. I, I'm in no position to tell a woman, you know, you shouldn't do this because, you know, it, it's going to hurt you. I mean, it, it's up to, I respect individuals. That's how it, I think, is supposed to be. Uh, and uh, the the uh, the far right, the re, you know, the idea of facts, you know, that gets in the way of religion. I, I read somewhere that a, a, a woman was saying how she didn't want actual history taught to her children in school because it might interrupt their beliefs. And to see yeah. that as so much power now, boy, we really have to fight back. We can't just sit here and do nothing. That's just my opinion. And back to stories. Back in the early 80s, I, I served as an escort for women going into the Feminist Health Center in my town, mm -hmm. Portsmouth. The anti-choice people yelled and screamed horrible, frankly abusive things at the clients who had a hard enough time just being there. I hate to, to repeat, yeah. but this one person said, you'll hear your baby screams forever. Shame on them. It's not hyperbole to picture a return to oppressive, is it not a, a hyperbole to, to return to oppressive witch trial like terrorist procedures replacing what had been equal protection under the law since 1973? I mean, <laughs> I sort of think... It's sort of a stretch, okay. but... Well, no, I mean, I, I think there's... You know, I fear that's where we're headed. You know, I think in, I don't think it's hyperbole entirely. I, it's, it's definitely a very real fear. You know, I too, like you, I've spent a lot of time outside clinics mm -hmm. um, across the country, and the vitriol is oh. just incredible. You know, and we also know that. I mean, a very real fear in the near term is, is, is if we want to look at history, um, is that we know that like anti-abortion extremists have killed abortion providers, have destroyed clinics. Mm -hmm. um, and the threats against uh, providers um, have increased, uh, particularly since 2016. And there is a real fear right now that it's going to escalate even further. And I know clinic operators across the country who are, are beefing up security measures yeah, and yeah. sort of bracing for the onslaught. Yeah. Um, so I think there are very serious, like, you know, <laughs> there, there are like very serious concerns there. But I also think like, again, that like the notion that all of this is sort of stops with abortion is just like not true. No. Um, and, and states have been already, and I think probably will increasingly push for fetal personhood status which would flat out criminalize abortion. Um, and that's kind of truly terrifying. Yeah, it, it really is uh, to do that. Uh, but they're, they're doing it, and uh, it's about them gaining power, I think, and it's part of the big culture war. And mm -hmm. talking about Alito, you know, he's clearly an old-school white man with all the biases of his time growing up. And 
he he said something about abortion reducing the population of less than wanted kids, kids in low income areas, kids of color. You say the burden has fallen. The, the reality is the burden has fallen disproportionately on people of color, those with low incomes, those living in more rural areas of the country that tend to vote for Trump, young people, immigrants, and LGBTQ plus people. Doing away with Roe is only going to exacerbate those inequities. How will that work, do you think? Well, I mean, all the way really. I mean, Roe was kind of always the, the floor, sort of not the ceiling, right? It was like, <laughs> but for many ways, regardless, it was always more of a promise on paper for so many people. Because if you have a right, like you can't act on it. So like in this context, you have the right to abortion, but you can't access it. And it's not truly a right. And that has been the case ever since Roe was handed down for a number of people for a variety of, of reasons. I mean, wealthy people have, have always had access to a, a abortion, but those without privilege have not. And that has profoundly sort of impacted marginalized communities. So, you know, uh, all the all the, the class of folks that we're talking about. And when Roe goes away, like we know that the, the, the need for healthcare won't go away. Right. It, and so the, the, the access then is, is really going to be even more tricky and out of reach than it is now. And so that is going to broaden these longstanding inequalities that we have dealt with for decades. And it doesn't seem to matter that, as, as Barney Frank said, former congressman, uh, they're pro-choice they're pro-life. They're pro-life from conception to birth. That's where it is. Yeah. That's where it is. Yeah. And and yeah. I've been around since the Warren Court, and there's long been, really long, a proud tradition of constantly, consistently expanding the rights of Americans. This opinion yeah. shifts that into reverse. Are there <laughs> rights which in the past have been there and then restricted? You know, I, I, again, not a legal right. scholar. I mean, I know that there were some worker protections that were overturned, you know, sort of early uh, in right. the last century, but then sort of later restored when the court, like, basically did a take back. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so I imagine there are certainly other, probably other examples out there, but, but I don't think that they are anywhere near as the sort of this incredibly dramatic wholesale disenfranchising yeah. move, you know, which to my knowledge is, is unparalleled basically in the jurisprudence. Yeah. It seems rather clearly shocking to me. I mean, the fact that it made yeah. such big news is not without reason. And of course the process for uh, being confirmed to the U S Supreme court as a justice in the Supreme court uh, involves interviewing with the United States senators mm -hmm. and they, uh, Alito voted, uh, you know, went before them. They all do that. And it seems like all the anti-choice candidates for uh, uh, Supreme Court justice were, shall we say, less than truthful about their positions on the issue when they did those crucial interviews. The anti-choice justices that are there now insisted they, oh yeah, I'll recognize stare decisis. <laughs> First off, what does that mean in the case of Roe, stare decisis? Well, it's the idea that settled law is settled law and that we don't 
just willy-nilly overturn laws because we disagree with them, right? Like, that's just not enough. And and that kind of also gets back to the, the reliance question, right? Like, we're, you know, what this precedent has built this bedrock for reliance. And just because, like, you disfavor a particular right, that's just not enough. And then this also sort of gets back to the idea you're talking about this race, I, setting up the idea that that Roe, that abortion itself is racist, that sets up this sort of special justification idea because to overturn stare decisis, you're supposed to have some special justification for that. Again, not just like, I don't like this. Like there has to be some other reason. So you can see throughout Alito's opinion that he's trying to build in like the idea that you know, aside from just, you know, flat out saying, hey, this was was, you know, this isn't in the Constitution. This is wrong, which, again, we've discussed as a historic, but but also to build this. But look, it's also racist. So, look, we did We have no other choice but to then to get rid of this. And so it really does cut against what pretty much all of our justices have said um, about the, you know, how important stare decisis is. I mean, I guess Sorry to say this, uh, you know, except for when we don't like it. So I guess, in fact, it's sorry to say this for me, but not for thee. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's a good way to, to, to choose laws in this country and to set uh, recognize the Constitution. If I don't like it, pff, too bad. It goes, right, oh. exactly. And in terms of precedent for their opinions, uh, Alito's... In his comments, in, in his uh, opinion, I guess it was, he mm-hmm. referred to something I'd never heard of, the 17th century writings of Sir Edward Coke in formerly Great Britain. This is not hidden. He's upfront about this. Alito cites the outdated, questionable common law from the 17th and 18th centuries to justify abortion bans that would criminalize women for terminating their pres- uh, their pregnancies. He also approvingly cites language describing one woman who had received an abortion as a murderess. That's his word. And he considers other random 17th and 18th century uh, (laughs) punishments for abortion. For example, in 1732, Eleanor Beer, I suppose, B-E-A-R-E, was convicted of destroying the fetus in the womb of another woman. For that crime and another misdemeanor, she was sentenced to two days in the pillory, which ain't easy, and three years imprisonment. I mean, wow. They're actually, are there people on the right who like that? I guess so. I mean, it's it's appalling to me that he'd reach back that far as opposed to our Constitution, which has been tested thoroughly again and again and again. Well, yeah, I mean, he actually quotes a lot of bonkers, super old, yeah. like, crazy white man energy. Um, I mean, he, I can't remember the guy, it's Hale maybe is another, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but basically a guy who wrote a treatise about, you know, like uh, the, like giving the thumbs up to sort of spousal rape. Like these are the people he's citing. Um, And, you know, but also meanwhile, you know, of note, like to what we were talking about before, it's like, he goes into this like bonkers history, but fails to like actually sort of vet the history of the ninth amendment and the 14th amendment, which are like, very directly relevant and you know kind of come after all this bonkersness so it's just really disingenuous but you know again i think it goes back to this like saying the quiet part out loud i mean it's distressing but i think this is actually uh um it gives a a little window into how alito sees us and it's definitely terrifying yeah it, it really is uh 
and we have to get this. And I, I did, it was interesting. I was, uh, when I was in the state Senate and working with uh, pro-choice groups, NARA, when I was helping them, I found it deeply troubling back in the 1990s that we just couldn't reach young women of childbearing age. They just didn't connect with this issue. They didn't, they didn't take it seriously. They weren't motivated to get involved to preserve their rights. And now we're headed into another extremely important election. Like so many of us, we've reluctantly, well, accepted our own political powerlessness. There seems to be a lot of that going around, which is, of course, the goal of the far right, to believe we don't have power. This league shocked the world. Do you have any sense that this time young women of childbearing age might be actually motivated, or is it just pocketbook issues as usual? Your thoughts. Crystal ball. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, that's pretty hard. I mean, because you can't talk about young women as a monolith. I mean, there, right, are, right. there are very, there are, there are, there are plenty of women who just like are, don't have the resources or the time or the energy to actually engage directly. I'm sure. Right. I mean, but the, for those who do, I think in a way, you know, I've thought about this because I think, mm-hmm. I, I think in a way, um, you're talking about several generations now of women who have lived yes. um, with Roe and this kind of understanding that this is a right. Now, regardless whether um, they've been able to access it, I mean, it goes back to the people with the privilege, right? Which is, I think, have taken this for granted. In, in part, maybe, you know, I don't know why, but it could just be because the reliance interest is so great. Like you just assume this is settled law because he's like grown up, you know, your mom, like, you know, everybody, you know, it's always been there. So there could be right, that. I right. think, I think that, you know, um, I think that people and particularly um, young people um, are really perhaps in a better position now to, because they don't look at, I think they're increasingly looking at the intersectionality of all these rights. In other words, not that we don't have, we do not, we never had the luxury of doing this, but we, we kind of lulled ourselves into thinking this, that we could stand on single issues and not see the threads that connect them. Um, And so I think that the young people see that all these things are implicated, like, Voting rights, gerrymandering, you don't get, you know, you don't get these judges, you don't get these laws if you get your vote. Um, And also that you can't just stand as, you know, people who are talking about abortion rights without talking about access to health care, to prenatal care. I mean, the maternal mortality rate in this country is truly shocking Mm. and it shouldn't be that way. But we we don't take care of people on that end. And, you know, we don't also have parental leave. We don't have a lot of worker protections that could perhaps make an unplanned pregnancy far more palatable or wanted. So I think the kids now, I really, I mean, from what I see, they understand that all these things are connected and don't want to be siloed Mm -hmm. off into suggesting that one one right is is, is siloed, right? Like that these are all individually, Uh uh like, Relevant, And so I guess this is my long-winded way of saying that I think that 
it will be shocking. In part, in a way, the intersectionality is kind of defined here. He's saying abortion rights, oh, it's over here. But it's very clear that everything else is on the table. And if, you know, if anything else, Alito, Alito has made that clear. And I hope that that really um, resonates with the kind of intersectional work that reproductive justice advocates and social justice advocates have been doing and will, you know, motivate them to press forward. And And frankly, I wish... That um, I hope that I mean I've been I've actually taken a lot of solace in in the activism of the youngest yeah. generations, yeah. and I hope that that this is just really a wake up call actually to people who um, are in their you know later thirties and forties and into middle age because yeah, really. this you know you've got to care about your children and your grandchildren and also yourself because again this is not this is not the end of something this is not just abortion gets on the chopping block. There is a whole scary world of things that potentially come next, which, you know, maybe you don't care about abortion, but right. maybe you care about any other number of things which are now, you know, in jeopardy. So, I don't know, long-winded, sorry. Yeah, but, you know, I still wonder, I mean, our democracy is really threatened as it's never been before. And I don't know if people will get fired up about, I mean, because it's, 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 you know, you can't see it, you can't feel it, it's not in your wallet, but uh, I don't know if people get fired up about protecting democracy. And I wanted to ask if Alito and Thomas, uh, are they, how do other justices see them? Do they see them as radical activists on the fringe, or is he just one of their team, do you think? A little speculation. Oh, my God. I have no idea. I, 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 I think, I, like, I don't know, that's so hard, right? Because I think, like, Alito and Thomas are very outspoken in a very particular way, right? And that I, I would imagine probably drives some of their colleagues on that court a little nuts, even if they absolutely agree with the end results that they come up with, right? But I don't know. This is like pure tea leave reading. But, you know, they also clearly have um, lots of former law clerks and, and, and people who kind of grew up under their judicial philosophy that are uh -huh. working lawyers and who are also judges on uh -huh. various courts. So, uh -huh. yeah, so that's terrifying yeah. too, I suppose. Right. But like, so there are, you know, so it's kind of like hard. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are just sort of like freaked out by them, but you know, they also have their, their little armies, I'm sure too. So it's kind of, you know, no, we no. can we can hope <laughs> hope for young people to do that, but you're, you're right. A lot of them have been brought up in that way, and uh, surprisingly to me, uh, believed in the in the right wing stuff. When th there's different ways of doing this, I think you know the most important thing for people to do is to vote, because elections yeah. have uh, effects. You know, and and but another possibility that's been tossed out there: there's no legal constitutional reason not to expand numbers on the Supreme Court. Politically, that's another story. Such an endeavor might address the jamming of Trump's Neil Gorsuch when by all rights, it was President Obama's turn. What do you think about that uh, expanding numbers of the Supreme Court? Is that impossible? Is that a way to do it? I mean, obviously, it's a way to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I have no idea what to say. I mean, it's like, I, I see the wisdom of that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just I don't know what to say about that, to be honest. I mean, I, 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 I really do think, though, that we have a like real sort of crisis of legitimacy happening. Um, mm -hmm. And so I don't 
it's sort of like, what do we do, right? Because I feel like this current makeup of this court is is increasingly putting that question of legitimacy on the line. Yeah, Um, And we kind of see that happening like all over the place, right? Like the ways in which, again, back to voting restriction, extreme gerrymandering, sort of like shrugging of shoulders that has been rather alarming over the January 6th insurrection. I think it's kind of scary time for that sort of rule of law and our ability to put our faith in it. And so, you know, that's very much tied up with, you know, sort of the image of the Supreme Court. So I think it's a legitimate question, obviously, to be asking, like, you know, how do you revive that legitimacy? Maybe it is having to expand it so it becomes less of this, this, like, completely political Mm. animal that it's become. But, you know... (laughs) And the the idea of, of, of the rule of law, I suspect a lot of people on the on the Trumpist right would like scoff at that. Yeah, rule of law, sure. No, it's what I do happens. And I, I do, I, I can't help but think that uh, there, was a, there was a sign I saw, a great protest sign. It's never been about babies. It's about stealing our bodily autonomy. And I fear that there's lots of signs of, of uh, people like Josh Hawley and others returning and and promoting what many of us would could see as toxic masculinity, and this may be a signal on other rights, despite despised by the right, like marriage equality and rights for trans people. Well, this is not over. Very interesting. If people want to read uh, more from Jordan Smith, she is senior reporter for The Intercept. Thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, put some faith. We got to put our faith in the younger generation, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, we do. I think so. And, uh, but we can't give up on us middle-aged people either. That's true. So. Well, I'm well beyond middle age, so I'm not giving right. up either. Thank you so much. All right, go. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> 
Get up, boy. 